You want to see what the future tastes like? Farm Sanctuary CEO Megan Watkins explains. These are your friends and neighbors. For as long as I can remember, I've been telling my friend, Farm Sanctuary CEO Meg Watkins, that she is way ahead of the curve when it comes to how Americans treat animals, the earth, and themselves. Now, even as a kid from Iowa, I imagined farms as bucolic, self-sustaining places. Silos full of corn, muddy pigs, fresh milk from a well-loved heifer, eggs from the family hen. But of course, farming hasn't been a mom-pop operation for years. It's big business. Pesticides, fertilizers, antibiotics, growth hormones. Now, in the United States, nearly 10 billion animals are killed for human consumption every year. 99% are raised on factory farms. 80% of agricultural land is used to raise those animals or their feed. So if U.S. crops were directed towards food for humans instead of livestock, we could feed three times more people than we do today, helping one in 10 U.S. families who don't have enough to eat. Animal agriculture is responsible for 15% of greenhouse gases, and according to the CDC, 75% of emerging infections. The United Nations says that animal agriculture is exerting mounting pressure on the world's natural resources, contributing to land degradation, species loss, water pollution, and waste. A plant-based diet, by contrast, can have innumerable health benefits like lower blood pressure, lower cholesterol, a lower risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and even certain cancers. But what with the sanitized, cartoonishly bucolic packaging and relentless marketing, got milk, and up until recently, a perceived lack of options, well, who would know or know what to do about it all? Agribusiness has a stake in keeping you in the dark. There are $1 billion worth of agribusiness advertising, making every effort to keep cows in slaughter and cheeseburgers on the table. Enter Farm Sanctuary, founded in 1986 by Gene Bauer as an advocate organization for farmed animals. Today, the nonprofit based in Watkins Glen, New York, promotes laws and policies that support animal welfare, animal protection, and veganism through rescue, education, and advocacy. And Megan is right out front, thoughtfully, gently, but firmly meeting people where we are and letting that innate connection we feel with all living things and the imperative to protect our planet lead the conversation. In our wide-ranging conversation, Megan and I discuss her upbringing in Newton, Mass., her experience building community at Barnard College and beyond, and the moment she knew what she had to do to really align herself with her values. It's a beautiful town. It's not unlike where we live now. My sisters and I grew up there with mom, right? So yeah. single mom, public school teacher, after school was with grandma, right? Widowed grandmother. So yeah. grandmother, mom, the sisters, and I, yeah, doing our thing in Newton. This is this household of strong women. What was that like? There's a certain grounding in values that we all brought with us, you know, from the time that we were pretty young. My mother and my grandmother were both extremely service oriented, right? Mm. And they were both teachers in the public schools. My grandmother was a very, you know, devout Catholic. She spent a lot of time doing service work in the church. I think what she brought in terms of compassion, my, my mom probably matched twofold with respect and integrity. Did Ginger, I, I actually know your mother well enough to call her by her first name. Did you see her struggle and did she 
like help you understand that that was part of life or did she conceal it or neither? How was kind of making your way through the world modeled for you guys? I think the financial struggle was tangible, but the other pieces I think she kept pretty well hidden. She supported us in making some pretty tough decisions and going on some interesting adventures. And I think where it became real, you know, is when you're thinking about trips or you're thinking about college or you're thinking about all of these opportunities that, you know, you see people around you having and you're interested in having or creating for yourself. You know, that was the piece that I think was probably just the most visible to us because it was a fact of life. It was something that we had to talk about and we had to process. We had to understand that if we were going to be pursuing those kinds of opportunities, we were going to be pitching in to make them happen. Give me an example of one of the things that Ginger, like, you know, maybe rolled her eyes at, but it was like, I got to let her do this. You know, you said we took some wild adventures and so forth. Give me an example. When I was 16, there's a presentation in my high school. It was a nonprofit organization called Amigos. And it was an organization that took kids to Latin America for volunteer opportunities during the summer. And I was immediately sucked in. It was like such curiosity for the world beyond, had fallen in love with Spanish language, wanting to do something useful with myself. And my mom was terrified. She had never left the country, never mind at 16 years old. She had to drive me all around town selling grapefruits and oranges to try to raise money to go, which you know she holds as a very fond memory. I'm sure. And then she had to sit with me on our front steps the night before I left while I was in tears and terrified and say, you know, it's okay if you don't go. And I said, no, it's not. She said, I know. And off I went, launched on this journey to kind of learn what it meant to be somewhere else and to be alone sometimes and to be fearful and to know that you could not necessarily conquer, but at least survive those fears. And then to find to find confidence, confidence at a level that at least matched the curiosity. Right. I like that. That's nice. It's also alliteration, confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, courage. So that helps me understand a little better sort of where I was headed, but we got to get to Barnard first. What an institution, like how, I mean, you must've been a heck of a student with a ton of moxie. This doesn't surprise me, but let's just say it, like talk to me about the journey and what that, that must've felt like something I I would think pretty major. You know, in hindsight, it was pretty major. I'm not sure that in the moment I knew how major it was. And interestingly, It was the only women's college that I had applied to. I did not think that I was going to Barnard. I didn't really recognize my grandmother had gone to a women's college. My mom had gone to a women's college. My sister had gone to Barnard. And I didn't think that that was going to be my path. For you, yeah. But there was a draw. There was a draw to the city for sure. And then there was a draw to this institution that just kind of attacks everything from all angles. Mm -hmm. It allows you to be creative. They push you really hard in terms of learning and exploration and confronting issues, issues that maybe you haven't explored before. But the piece that I think was the most meaningful for me was that community of women. Mm -hmm. Wasn't something that I had experienced before. And I think it's something to this day that I seek and I crave because of how important that was just in, I think, my personal evolution, professional evolution, so many lessons that I didn't know I needed to learn that I learned there that have stuck with me. 
Give me an example of a major takeaway of that experience. I mean, I, I know you're at least best pals with, with one of your buds from college, right? You know, it sticks. It's funny. I think every time in the city there was a major event, right? One of us would show up at the other's apartment. Like it's a safety net of people who are just there for one another unequivocally. Whether it's for career advice, whether it's relationship advice, whether there's been some kind of personal tragedy, tragedy or frankly, to celebrate some kind of success. Yeah. It's an extended family, for sure. That's important, by the way. We spend a lot of time sort of rooting through the challenges and we don't spend as much time patting each other on the back and high-fiving. It's true. So I joined this women's network recently. It's this group called Chief and it's a women's leadership network. And the first exercise that they had us do as an introduction was to sort of map your journey through peaks and valleys. And what I noticed mm. was how much I focused on the valleys, right? Yeah. And how formative those valleys are, right? They're so important in terms of how they inform the whole trajectory. But those moments to stop and celebrate those successes, you're right, it doesn't happen. They don't get the attention that they deserve. And, and that's something I think we all need to think about. It really is funny how little time we go like, hey, like, let's just let this in a second for each other. I don't know about you, I have a hunch, but other people validating, it's maybe not the right word, but other people getting your back on something, other people showing up for you has a whole different power than your own self-satisfaction or confidence or what have you. Yeah, it's necessary. We have to champion one another, right? We can't stay on and up every moment of every day and we go through tough stuff, right? Whether it's personally or professionally. It's tough when you don't have that community around you to hold you up in some of those moments. I'm going to go from community to math. How's that for a transition? I mean, I'm half kidding because there's, I think, a step in between, right? Like, so your major, it relates to Spanish. Hmm. Did it begin with the language? Did it begin in Spanish class and then kind of immersing in the culture? Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I was fascinated by language. I was pulled in by music. I had gotten to explore, right? So first through volunteering and then through studying abroad and then through some internships. It was a fascination. It was a fascination with something that was outside of my norm. And it was something I wanted to carry with me, but I wasn't exactly sure how to integrate it into what I was going to be doing next. So you do Latin American studies as a major. Mm -hmm. How were you thinking about channeling it at that point? It was tough. You go through so many professional experiences. And at the end of the day, the skill is the easy part, you know, like that's the commoditized right. part. We can all go and learn a new skill, but it's the heart. We were saying the hustle up front. Yeah, the work itself, yeah. Right, that are so much harder to find, the critical thinking, all of those pieces. I went fairly straight into graduate school because I felt like I, I needed to understand more of the career optionality and how to take an interest in kind of social and cultural and some level of economic study and translate it more into a job. And that was the other thing mom was very clear about, right? You're not staying in New York City if you don't have a job. I love it. That's great. There's that, I love that imperative. Yeah. yeah. Where does the banking and math come from? Were you just always strong and confident in math? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. When I went into wealth management and I was told I had to take the Series 7 exam, I mean, I was sweating in the map room at the New York <laughs> Public Library, like day after day after day. I mean, it, just, it was not something that came naturally to me. But in all honesty, I mean, the reason that I was in banking was because I was working in philanthropic advising. And so while wealth strategy had to do with people's personal finance and planning and, you know, all that goes into thinking holistically 
about wealth, the underpinning of all of that at that level of magnitude, right, of wealth is its values. And so values and philanthropy are, are hand in hand. And I think as we start to think about how it is that you align your money with your values, and then what ends up happening at the end of that in terms of how you might participate philanthropically, it became a far more natural connection than I would have ever imagined. I mean, if you had told little Megan Watkins on yeah. Avenue, like you'll be working at JP Morgan or Bank of America, I would have laughed in your face. <laughs> but the reality is that there are individuals, there are families, there are institutions out there that are very serious about aligning money and values and can use the support in figuring out how do you then translate that into some level of significant positive impact. Was there a mentor or someone who helped you kind of find your way to that? Always, yeah. always. I mean, yeah. I think back to every significant transition professionally, and never mind personally, because we know, I mean, you're one of them, right? We've got the friends, the advisors, you. the peers around you, but professionally, there has always been not only a mentor, but a champion, an advocate, mm. right? To kind of help you clear the way. And so there were definitely people, and interestingly, you know, the majority women who, mm -hmm who were willing to open up a set of opportunities for me and to allow me flexibility and discomfort to mm. learn and to grow and to help create opportunity out of that. I love that you just emphasize discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. But kind of goes to your previous point about the, the peaks and valleys, right? And the valley, valleys are often the place where the lessons are, but we often want to get the heck out of the valley as rapidly as possible, <laughs> right? Yeah. At what point do you think you became aware of that as a kind of dynamic in your life, the idea that the valleys were the real, often the place of lessons. Honestly, really recently. Yeah, I was gonna say a couple weeks ago for me, you know. I think that even just pausing to recognize, like finding comfort and discomfort, like that's something that I think over the course of the past one to two years has really taken hold. It's hard not to rush to what you think is a solution or to do what you think is the right thing when you don't have all the right information, whatever right means in that context, you know, it's, it's really, really tough. And so I think learning how to press pause and learning how to, to find what you need to know and to listen and to learn and to wait until you can kind of carefully deploy some things, it's really meaningful. It always struck me as very pragmatic of you to understand that the most impact you could make in the space was to just simply acknowledge that there were people who had lots of money out there and there was nothing wrong with that. And that in fact, there's a terrific opportunity there. But to me, just as I don't think I've ever said this to you, it like takes a step that I honestly hadn't made until I got to know you. Just because to me, having a lot of money was inherently not a positive thing because somehow it made you like, you know, someone who exploited something. It's an interesting thing because it took me, I had to confront it face to face too. You know, I was working in a nonprofit out of grad school and it was a community development organization, small business lending, tiny, tiny business lending. We're talking corner book stands, home-based salons and daycares. And when 9-11 happened mm. and so many individuals and families lost their livelihood. There were so many doors that were shuttered and we had to immediately reorient ourselves to figure out how we could step in 
and support some level of recovery and redevelopment. And I remember absolutely the day, you know, sitting at a folding table on Main Lane with a line of people in front of me, knowing, you know, as I'm looking at this spreadsheet that the dollars that we had to provide support were dwindling so, so quickly. And you know, these aren't, they're not big businesses. They're not large profit margins, right? This is the difference of whether or not you can feed your family. And it was devastating. And there was a day right at that time when the phone rang and someone said, we just got a $500,000 gift from a donor. He was a private wealth client of a bank and it immediately refilled the pipeline of what we were able to do. And it flipped a switch in my head, right? How did he know who we were? How did he know where to give? And it turned out that there was a team behind him, right? That was advising him on where he could give in line with his values and his interests that could make a significant impact on the ground. I'm I'm interested in how you came upon Gene and Farm Sanctuary. There must be, and and I I don't know the origin story here, so please share a a connection to the mission, right? We grew up with dogs and guinea pigs. I mean, (laughs) loved, loved animals for sure. But until I started working with some clients who cared about animals and had a level of wealth where they could create some positive impact, right, within the field of animal rescue or wildlife protection, interestingly not farmed animals at the time, I started to be able to explore it professionally and understand the work that was happening, understand the sector a little bit more. And one of the conferences that I had attended Gene was actually a speaker along with a couple of other people on farmed animal issues. And it was an animal philanthropy conference. And, you know, this was one of the segments. I have apologized to him because I left his presentation <laughs> because I, cu- I couldn't handle it. The imagery, the stories, the atrocities, like I just had this sort of visceral reaction. And I think from that moment started to think differently and think differently about the work that I was doing, the people I was working with, the inability or sometimes unwillingness to focus on these animals who, I mean, we're talking about nearly 80 billion animals over here, right? The numbers are, are insane. That really lands, dude. Yeah. When it sticks, it sticks. And I had a lot of trouble sleeping after I started learning more. And I think, you know, these are the lessons we learn, right? So for some of us getting closer to the problem feels better. And I guess if you're getting closer to the problem, maybe you're getting closer to the solution too. Mm -hmm. That was for me, that was a real turning point. And I think, whereas it didn't happen in that moment, that transition there, there started a a seed was planted in that moment where, you know, I joined the board of Farm Sanctuary first and I was able to be a volunteer from a governance standpoint, right? And I was able to sort of live that passion component in parallel to what I was doing professionally. But there just, there came a time when that wasn't enough. Help us understand what Farm Sanctuary does. Farm Sanctuary started 35 years ago this year, actually 35 years ago this month. And planned that. (laughs) With one rescue, right? It was Gene rescuing one animal, which, you know, we often refer to as this radical act of compassion because it was right here is an animal who has been left for dead by an industry, but who very much has the will to live. And in rescuing that animal, sort of the beginning of farm sanctuary and the beginning of this farmed sanctuary movement, right? So 
it started as a very small grassroots activist organization where animal rescue was coupled with a lot of advocacy initiatives. And since that time has grown into a national organization that continues to do rescue and brilliant care for animals, continues to advocate for animals, but also has taken on an enormous education mandate, whether that is broad public awareness or whether that is actual in-classroom education with children to help people understand who these animals are, right? And to help people see these animals differently and experience them differently and hopefully inspire behavior change. I think we have a bucolic fantasy, right, about what a farm is. And it's like a fiction, right? And then worse, we end up getting packaged meats, packaged foods is presented in such a manner that it's not even connected to the actual humanity of the individual life, right? right? So you just have this series of disconnects that we're steeped in from the outset. It's very true. And I think when you start to connect those dots, it becomes very uncomfortable. So there are some natural inclinations. It's either you push it away and, and you look the other way or you take it in. And once you take it in, it becomes harder and harder not to start yeah. making change. How do you guys think about the organization's mission vis-a-vis -vis veganism, vegetarianism? I mean, it seems to me it's just a natural byproduct. If you recognize the value of each life on earth, then you're probably not going to stuff it in your face. I think we recognize, and I, I really do say this as an institution, I think we recognize that people come to this work through different doors, right? For some, it's deep concern for the environment. For some, it's concern over a family member who might have fallen sick and there's a health concern. For another, it might be animal rights. For others, it's social justice issues tied up with workers, right, in the food system. And so there are many different ways that people come to the issue. And I think that we have to not only understand that, but assume that and know that even though you know we are principally founded right around these animals these animals who call farm sanctuary home and those you know beyond who haven't yet come to farm sanctuary they're very much going to remain the focus of this organization because i think it really is it's the work to benefit them right it's this is a huge protection movement the work is always for us as farm sanctuary going to be for the benefit of the animals but not to the exclusion <laughs> of these other issues. And if we think about what we've just gone through in the past year, global pandemic, yeah. if we think about environmental crisis, if we think about just cruelty and violence and what's happening Social now. Social justice, in, racial yeah, justice, totally. totally, yeah. What happens in slaughterhouses and how that violence comes home. You know, all of these issues that are tied up in the food system, it's impossible not to see the connections and it becomes very evident how much more we all need to be working together across movements to get this kind of change made. We all know what it feels like to be treated right, right? Right. And we all know what it feels like to be treated wrong. Now, others may know worse, but you know, generally speaking. I think that's right. And honestly speaking, that's what sanctuary is, right? I mean, if we think about, yes, we've created a safe haven, right? There is rescue and refuge for these animals. But in essence, sanctuary is much more than a physical location, right? We're talking about a place where anyone, human or non-human, is able to live in peace and with dignity. And, and that's hard to fight. <laughs> you know, that's, that is a feeling that I think we, we should all be striving for. You talk about that experience is kind of invite people in thoughtfully, 
gently, empathetically meeting them where they are and just let them have their own experience and kind of epiphany, right? Yeah, it's not a sneak attack, right? And it's not a a holier than thou, it's not a grandstand. For each of us, right, you experience this very personally. It's definitely about that journey and what you feel comfortable with. Every time we're going through something big, whether that's something really difficult, whether it's a transformation of sorts, you, you do it well and you feel good about it when it's grounded in what you believe in, right? I mean, when you're really living your values and you're living in a principled way, and I don't mean that in a way that's judging, I mean that in a way that you hold really close, you can feel good about what you're doing. And I think that's the challenge with this is that so many, and I was one, right, who are living just not in accordance with your values. And once I started living more closely aligned with what I really cared about, taking a stand for wanting to cause less suffering, right, in the world around me, it feels better. Fred Rogers famously said that he couldn't eat anything that had a mother. And when you hear the stories and the data and you see the imagery and feel the love, living those values, compassion, empathy, kindness, and stewardship becomes a no-brainer. But that doesn't mean it's obvious or immediate or easy. When I learned that cheeseburgers accounted for more greenhouse gases than automobiles, I changed my behavior. But as the journey of a thousand steps begins with just one, I started small. Salads with nuts uh, instead of chicken, plant-based burgers instead of beef. And today our family eats 80% less meat easily than before. If everyone in America did the same, that could be some real progress. At his now famous Dartmouth College commencement address, Fred Rogers said, when I say it's you I like, I'm talking about that part of you that knows that life is far more than anything you can ever see or hear or touch. That deep part of you that allows you to stand for those things without which humankind cannot survive. Love that conquers hate, peace that rises triumphant over war, and justice that proves more powerful than greed. This is Meg's work, and this is our work. And it may not come in the form of an assignment or a task or a strategy or a day job, and it it may not come with a budget or a logo or a work back plan, and it won't end in plumes, fireworks, or a promotion. It may just be an instant, an otherwise afterthought, every day or every so often. What will you choose? In all that you do, in all of your life, Fred finished, I wish you the strength and grace to make those choices which will allow you and your neighbor to become the best of whoever you are. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what we're doing here, please, for heaven's sakes, rate, comment, and share friends and neighbors with your friends and neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.